We are back for another Codex Cantina episode, which is just two guys talking literature, trying to make sense of it. Now, we spend a lot of time pushing ourselves, trying to understand this literature, organizing it, and then bringing it to a conversational approach for how we deliver it. And we've absolutely put more money in it than we've gotten out of it. So if you guys are considering supporting this channel, we'd appreciate you checking out our Patreon link at patreon.com slash the Codex Cantina, as well as Ko-Fi of ko-fi.com slash the Codex Cantina. It all helps us in running the show, along with commercials, guys. So thank you so much. We're going to do a quick commercial break, and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. All right, we've had a lot of changes. Do you have a favorite character yet? I don't want to say, because I'm going to get so much grief for it. Okay, well, let me ask it differently. Who would you grab a beer with? Stefan? Steva? Steva? Yeah. Steva would be a lot of fun. He'd throw a good party. But we've had a lot of changes, okay? We are entering into parts four and five discussion today, leaving parts one and three behind. See ya, farming and the slow life. We are entering the fast lane with these two chapters, because holy crap, did a lot happen in these chapters. It's kind of like... He took some of the stuff in three and pulled it out, I think on purpose, and put it into four. So we're going to have to talk about that today. Four and five have to be like the crux of the entire story. There's so much to unpack here. So let's do our discussions. Book four, plot summary, and then kind of discuss that, and then book five. But the assumption is that you've read parts four and five for today's discussion. Yeah, I think they're very interconnected, so let's do it. All right, part four, we continue with Anna and Vronsky and Karenin playing Three's Company. Vronsky and Anna can see each other, just not in the house. And in this triangle, we see just how miserable they are. Actually, you remember that story that we read, The um, Lady with the Toy Dog by Anton Chekhov? And we were told it was like an homage to Anna Karenina. Like, you could really see that in this section about public versus private life and how miserable it can be when you're, like, cheating and being immoralistic. I don't know. It it is a good comparison now when you look at it in advance. Agreed. uh, Yeah. Retrospective. Like, yes, 100%. So one day, when Vronsky comes over to the house, where he is forbidden, of course, he passes, <laughs> wouldn't you know it, Karenin. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, Now, later, Karenin tells Anna, yeah, uh, divorce is on, girl. And he goes and sees the divorce lawyer, and he finds out- And he's out taking he's the kid. Ge- and he's taking the kid. And uh, he finds out he's going to need more physical evidence of the affair than just some love letters. Karenin heads out for work and stops in Moscow at the Oblonsky home, as one does. That's where the party is, right? Mm-hmm. And yep. we, we have we everyone's invited, including Levin and Kitty, who finally reconcile mm-hmm. and get engaged at yeah, this party. Yeah, buddy. Woo! But that's not enough. Levin needs Kitty to know the truth. So here's his dirty secrets, including that he is not a virgin and a non-believer. <gasps> In his diary that he hands over to her. Fun fact, Tolstoy actually did that to his wife, too. Believe it or what? not. <laughs> Karenin returns home upon request from Anna to find that she's given birth to Vronsky's little girl. Anna lays near death, and Karenin is moved to compassion and promises not to leave Anna. Like, hey, divorce is off the table again, girl. We're, we're good. <laughs> now, Vronsky returns home and attempts suicide with his revolver, but fails to hit his own heart. I mean, how hard, how hard is that? Like, 
you got to be a pretty bad shot. I don't know. Definitely no, <laughs> definitely no bear hunting for Vronsky. I'm just saying. All right. Luckily, everybody recovers except Karenin's heart <laughs> because Hablonsky <laughs> visits. And after their talk, divorce is back on the table again, right? Oh, Blonsky. Flippity flop, flippity flop. Yeah, you make everything so much smoother, Blonsky. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Now, dr- dramatically, Vronsky abandons his military post, rushes to Anna upon hearing the divorce news, Divorce news breaks into their home with no care who's there, embraces her in a kiss, symbolically starting their new life, which actually was a very beautifully written scene. That's probably, wow, that was very, very highlight-ish for us, I think, so far in this book of scenes so far. I know that we were, you know, a little bit jovial with the recap there of the plot, but there are some very tender and touching moments in part four of the book. So Anna... And Levin, it has become more apparent to me that Tolstoy loves writing these two stories to kind of be connected. Would you agree? 100%. It's very interesting to me that how the more that Levin is honest, his life gets better, and how much more worse Anna's life gets as she falls into not more deceitfulness, but more accepting of the, quote, sins that she believes that she has committed. Are you saying Tolstoy is a moralist? That's so shocking. <laughs> I might be. I don't know. <laughs> well, we're, we're coming out of a, what I think a lot of people would say is a slower part three. Call, call me crazy. Going out on a limb there. But no, at, the same t- I, I, at the same time, well, even if I was crazy, I don't know if that proves it. <laughs> <laughs> at the same time, I think this reinforces, I think, some of Tolstoy's views on how Levin lives. It's serene, it's calm, it's peaceful, it's centered in a sense, if not eccentric. <laughs> in Anna's life, in, in Vronsky's, oh, it's crazy. Like things are just happening left and right, things are moving quick. And they're also the ones that I think, you know, Tolstoy kind of, he wants you to sympathize with his characters, but he wants you to see their downfall and the immorality of their choices and the the pain that it can cause in a, in a community, not even just to them as a family, but to the community too, how their reaction to them is. And, and it's almost like polar opposites, Levin and Anna at this point in time, because Anna's it's accelerating at a breakneck speed. I don't know if we're going to make it to part eight at this rate. I have a question for you, though. Do you think, although both of them are being honest, because maybe they're not being honest with themselves, at least Anna isn't, but Levin is very much honest with himself and with Kitty, that that's why there seems to be more positivity happening for one over the other? Take a look at last year's Tolstoy Triggered Project. Every time a character did the right thing, the moralistically correct thing, uh, according to, you know, what Tolstoy's beliefs would be, good things happen to them, right? And sometimes the good things could be death, but it could be them reaching heaven, grace, salvation, that sort of thing. But it's always, the in terms of genre fiction, it's kind of like a comedy where evil is punished and good is rewarded is a lot of the way Tolstoy writes things. We've talked about this before, right? Where if you are connected to the land and it makes you more pure and wholesome and you are, you know, your hands are down in the dirt, then good things are going to come to you. And if you're more interested in those riches, you can't take those to heaven with you, uh, that that you're going to be punished for those things. And I feel like even though 
Anna seems to try to be making the right choices for herself and her family, she is still so attached to that Russian lifestyle. She just can't give that up. And she is making somewhat of a selfish choice here. Now, a little bit of that changes in part five, and we'll get there. And I know we're going to be jumping back and forth. But Levin just always seems to hold true to his moral values of, you know, I'm going to farm, I'm going to tell the truth. And as he moves forward, his life is just progressively getting better. You know what? At the end of the day, though, I just want a shirt that just says Oblonsky made me do it because <laughs> because this guy comes That's in That's good. and just and just mucks things up every time. Oblonsky to me is the epitome. I don't even think Anna's like the lowest, right? Like like we we have compassion for Anna. Oblonsky though is like, dude, <laughs> what are you gonna do? Something constructive because he constantly screws everything up for people. But he's social. He's fun. I'd definitely be, grab a beer with him, right? I don't know. I feel like he'd get you in trouble. <laughs> he is. He, he, everybody has that one friend, and he's the one friend that I would not invite to my house party because he's going to hit on my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Most assuredly. All right, let's talk about um, moving on from Levin. We'll come back to him, of course. But let's talk about Anna and Vronsky, right? Because these two have a connection, too, where they have the shared dream. What did you think about that thing? Yeah, the dream is a lot to unpack as well, right? So we have these uh, Russian peasants that are speaking French. And why do they speak French? Well, this is something that they would do to almost have like a secret message to be able to hide information. Um, it was a way to lord over, you know, their education or intellect over maybe the peasants. Um, and they're speaking French in the dream. I wasn't sure exactly how to interpret that, except for, again, they're always coming back to this idea that they're class is so important to them and important to them in Russia at the time period in, in 19th century. Well, and French was the language of the courts at the time too, right? It wasn't even just like like learning a secret language. It was aristocracy. Like like that was the language of aristocracy and of the, the you know, starting from Peter the Great, you had a lot of czars that would flip back and forth on liberalization and traditionalism of, of uh, Russia at the time. So I thought it was really interesting that the peasant spoke French. That seems very significant. And obviously, the usage of French and whether they're being intimate or whether they're being casual with their French is a point that is belabored throughout this novel that I don't know if I know where that's going exactly yet, but it's something that we clearly have to track. Maybe the whole point of the dream is just Tolstoy's way of foreshadowing that she's pulling a Padme and you're not getting out of childbirth, lady. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not I don't feeling know, good for Anna after the last part with the horse races too, where the horse broke its back. Oh. It's not looking good for our heroine at this point in time, I'll say that. Well, maybe she just ends up in a wheelchair. You can have a great life, no problem, Anna. You can still go wheel around all the balls. <laughs> well, okay, now speaking for her though when she was suffering she suffered for three days three days being the same number of days that christ was dead before being reborn right death is definitely a key element to these chapters and we have even vronsky attempting suicide and failing at it right and then you know if, if you may allow me to skip ahead you know pull from point five real quick we have nikolai's death we have a lot of death in this section as well so for me, I go to Tolstoy himself. He has renounced religion, and maybe he's starting to try to grasp on to straws here back at his religion as he's moving forward with the writing of the story. And maybe he's questioning this idea in the dream and the idea of predestination or that our lives are all mapped out for us and we can't do anything to control that. 
And life is kind of what you make it and you don't get a choice or do you get a choice? And with Anna and, and Levin, we kind of see both of them making choices and none of it really matter. Both these things are happening to him whether they want to or not. You know, at 18, he renounced Christianity and it's not to like, what, 10 years later after this that he kind of goes back. So it's a journey for him, you know, which is always kind of strange when you when you look at Tolstoy's life and his writings because – you know, you can classify people, but there's a scale. There's there's days that you feel more than one way than the other. But one thing that Tolstoy does really well is is sometimes you use maladies in your writing to represent, I think, problems. You know, we talk about that with the story of an hour by Kate Chopin and the heart means something. Well, what if we apply that lens to Vronsky here? What does it mean that he can't find his own heart? What does it mean that he missed his own heart? And the fact that he's not understanding his own emotions, maybe even at this point in time. Do you think one of the emotions here is forgiveness? Oh my gosh, give forgiveness and compassion for sure. Yeah, we see the flippity flop back and forth. And I know that a lot of people are going to be mad for me saying this, but old Alexei Karenin, he has the most growth. He is bitter and angry. And we're going to find out why in part five in a moment. And that just adds more to me understanding him and empathizing with him. And he forgives and he gives Anna her, her son. And we, we see that Levin is trying to ask for forgiveness for Kitty for, you know, for what he sees as a fault of his own. Man, there's, there's so much forgiveness and compassion in part four and five. It really hits you in the heart and sees how much these characters develop. And for me, old Alexi develops the most of all and has become the most intriguing character for me over Anna and Levin. And I know that's, ooh, you know, maybe bad. But again, that's just my opinion. <laughs> you know what? I told my wife about our, our great legendary two-for-one shirt sale joke on, on Karenin last time. And she brought up <laughs> a good point that, like, we don't fully understand Karenin yet. Like, we don't know the background. Was he ever more caring? Was he ever more loving? Because even with information being presented to us, it's not, while omniscient, it's not necessarily totally reliable because information is constantly withheld from us by various characters. And I think you're right. I, I, I also felt more with understanding Karenin, though I still, I'm still mad at him, if that makes sense. Like, I can, I can understand him as a character, but I can disagree with, with what he does. But he is also the one to self-reflect. And maybe change his actions, right? And I don't think Anna or Vronsky can change their actions at this point. Like, they're they're on the train, and that train's taken off, and there's no going back to the, the, the way that society would view them in terms of a wholesome marriage. They are now going to be shunned. And Karenin makes that choice. He's one of the people that, you know, to your point, you talked about choice earlier that could make that choice. And it's it's difficult, I think, as a reader to kind of juggle all these emotional, private feelings, because it's kind of like in the beginning, Karenin was so focused on public life and that was going great, but his private life was was going down into the poop chute, right? <laughs> and, and now he's making these choices where now his private life is increasing, like I think, like he's going to be happier, I think, separate or at least looking at general happiness, but his public life just starts to go tank. I guess explaining myself on the idea of why I find Crennan so fascinating. The idea of forgiveness is not a fix-all. It doesn't make him 
a perfect person. It's not his redemption that I think that, oh, now he's going to be the hero of the story. It isn't like he has become the great guy that I wanted him to be or something. It is it, not going to be that. But it definitely sees remorse and I think growth of this character. And as you pointed out, we really never know somebody until we walk in their shoes. And the more that this story unfolds, the more we are walking in all of these characters' shoes and understanding them a little bit better. Yeah, I, th- I agree. I-, I think I need to hone that into, I-, I think I side with you on life is what you make it, but it also matters who you share it with. Man, that should be on a fortune cookie. <laughs> <laughs> or a shirt. <laughs> oh, we can right. put that on the back of the shirt. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Part five plot. We, we, there was some women's education stuff in there. Let's see if we can wrap that up here in, in choices and into our part five discussion. So the wedding cometh, and Levin, the non-believer, goes to confession and sees Kitty against tradition against tradition on their wedding day. Already. More that happened now in the beginning of five and all part three. Anyways, their wedding goes off without a hitch. <laughs> Over the next few months, they get used to each other's moods and quarrels. Soon Levin learns that his brother Nikolai is dying, and Kitty protests that she goes with Levin, even though Levin doesn't want her to. In the end, he brings her along, and he sees her compassion as she cares for Nikolai. Kitty has also become pregnant. Oh, Nikolai dies. <laughs> Meanwhile, Anna and Vronsky tour Italy. That was super heartless, right? <laughs> they There they meet Vronsky's pseudo-friend Golanishov and renowned painter Mikhailov. Vronsky starts painting Anna, but when Mikhailov does a better job of painting her, he just quits painting. <laughs> they return home where Vronsky has some business and Anna wants to see Soryusha. Meanwhile, Mr. Karenin's career is heading down the poop chute. And he's becoming the non-creative inside joke. Let's delete that. <laughs> yeah, gulag doesn't exist yet. All right, chill out, people. Yeah. All right, he's become romantic with Countess Lydia Ivanovna, and they try to lie to Suryosha that Anna is dead. Suryosha, however, doesn't believe it and feels like he sees his mother everywhere uh, as they walk around, and his grades start to drop. Kind of sad. Kind of, just a little bit. I almost cried. At the same it's time, touching for sure. <laughs> at the same time, Anna sneaks in to see her son on his birthday, and she's unable to love her new daughter the same way that she loves her son. Karenin catches mm. him, by the way. Right, Vronsky is feeling a cold shoulder from the public opinion about his relationship with Anna now being public, and uh, Anna causes a disturbance at the opera, and then they leave. All right, and plot. Let's do five. <laughs> so, well, she leaves because that's important to talk about. She leaves, and he chases after her. Sure, sure. So, if you didn't pick it up on earlier, how connected Anna and Levin are, you have to now, right? Because they're both in their new relationship mood. Like you know, uh, Anna and, and Vronsky are touring around Italy, and Levin and Kitty are doing their new country life and adapting to this of each other. And they both kind of struggle with, well, I thought this is what I wanted and I thought this is what would make me happy, but it's different. And I think Levin's more accepting and maybe a little bit more happier than I think Anna was and Vronsky even of what they thought this relationship was going to be. I think we start to see a lot of the impact of the characters start to affect each other's kind of psyche at this time period. And we really see Anna struggle the most with everything as she's kind of bombarded with all these different emotions of her son and her daughter, her ex-husband, her new husband. 
And I think it's a little bit overbearing for her. Of course, she's being, you know, shunned by all the aristocrats and her supposed friends at the opera, but she leaves and she's feeling very isolated, I think, at this point in time. And I think that's, you know, weighing down on her because she doesn't know what she wants to do. She was supposed to be happy. This was supposed to be, yes, I'm going to lose maybe my status and people are going to talk bad about me, but I'm going to have, you know, my Vronsky. I'm going to have my children. Life's going to be okay. And it's not. And that's really kind of heartbreaking. And of course, Vronsky tries to comfort her and it doesn't work. And I'm, I'm very nervous for where, you know, Anna's story is going to go for, you know, almost the next half of the book. What did you think of Vronsky's painting? hideous i didn't get to see it (laughs) (laughs) you know what it reminds me a little bit of that situation in an earlier part with kitty and how she if you remember she was trying to like care for help a painter and we saw a little bit about how she had intentions of wanting to help but maybe the results were something that she couldn't control right of him falling in love causing harm the wife chasing him out I think it's similar here with Vronsky, too, where he has these attitudes of wanting to see Anna, to see and paint her beauty, but he's he's not having the right impact on life, right? He's he's failing to see how his choices can harm others and in your same point of how they're very connected. I think it's that old idea that the grass is always greener on the other side. This was something that he coveted, something that he wanted, a, a person that he wanted, and now that he has it, he's like meh and it's kind of like dude you broke up like a family maybe not a happy family but it takes two to tango and you help contribute to kind of quote this mess is my interpretation of it well could we even compare that earlier vronsky missed his heart earlier he didn't understand his emotions does he maybe have some parts of himself that are passionate that mean well but aren't necessarily true love. Yeah, I mean, it could be their own insecurities. It could be their own past. As you pointed out earlier, we don't have the entire picture. We don't know Vronsky's background of what he went through. It, 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 it could be something <laughs> like that, sure. But dump bump on not having the whole picture. <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, but, but pun intended. Your, but to your point, Mikhailov says that anyone can fake a painting, but an artist, only an artist can capture a soul. So what is it that Vronsky's failing at with capturing on a soul here is kind of my question. I don't know. I I guess the more I think about it, the paintings seem to be more a materialistic possession and the idea of wealth. Only rich people got paintings. Poor people were buying food and bread and trying to survive. Only the rich and the wealthy were ones that were able to afford paintings at the time. And maybe this is more kind of a social class divide thing that that Tolstoy is throwing in here at us. Well, that brings me into this. This is what my PhD paper is going to be on for Tolstoy here. You ready for this one? <laughs> I'm we ready. Talk, hit me. We talked about this in the death of Ivan Ilyich, which was probably two, three years ago now at this point. I can't even quite remember. Almost but two years ago. Yeah. I'm not making the argument that Tolstoy is trying to represent Kierkegaard's thoughts. What my point is being is that these two have, I think, very similar ways of thinking about some aspects of life. And I'm going to bring up again Kierkegaard's three spheres of existence. Okay. I don't remember them, so you have to remind me. So the, the three spheres are the, the aesthete, the ethical, and religion. So the first one, the aesthete, they're all about pleasure. They're all about the immediacy of gratification. It's not a hedonist. Well, hedonists can be asthetes. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a scale. 
Okay. And they're into immediate and physical things per se, like what could be paintings, stuff like that. Things that excite them, if you will. So let's talk about our party boy, Mr. Spring Break, Oblonsky himself. <laughs> That's a good name. I like that. That's fun. <laughs> He's the life of the party, but his personal life is an absolute shambles right? But all he's doing is constantly looking for that thing that's going to give him pleasure. In this chapter right here, it's really strange that he just kind of starts like, he's very flirty, even with like Betsy, like, it's just kind of strange that he'll just kind of flirt randomly for no big deal at all. And I think he's just constantly looking for those things that give him excitement, right? Rather than fixing up the house, the important thing to do to invest into that, he's like, I'm going to buy sweet looking curtains. I'm going to decorate this thing and it's going to be party central, right? Yeah, well, he wants the attention, right? He's the, the not a thrill seeker, but he's an attention seeker. It's me, 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 look over here, look over here. And, you know, it doesn't matter if it's the curtains or his dress or a painting or whatever. He needs you looking and giving him the attention at well, all times. It's kind of like that dopamine addiction, right? That's what gets mm, him yeah. high is, is that's his excitement levels. Right. And for Aspie's, yes, exactly. K- Kierkegaard's comment on them, which I imagine Tolstoy would agree with. Uh, I, I, I think their moralities align well in his writings and, and, and Kierkegaard's is that these are the people that don't necessarily adhere to morals. They're the people that just do what's pleasurable, right? Vronsky doesn't care that Anna was married. Oblonsky doesn't care that he's married. They're going to go out and do the things that are pleasurable to them specifically. And that's the problem is that it's this constant loop of looking for the new excitement that they can get bored. They would, I mean, okay, to the point of part three, when Oblonsky goes out to the country, he's bored as heck and views it. No, no, it's not Oblonsky. It's, um... Who's it? Krosnachev that goes out to the country in part three? Uh, I think it's Krosnachev. Eh. So, so either way, wh- whoever it was, they were viewing the country as pleasure, right? As opposed to the hard work and life that Levin viewed it. They looked at life totally different than the way Levin viewed that the, the way that he needed to live there. All right. All right. Keep rolling. I, I feel you. I feel you. Give it to me, country boy. So Kierkegaard believed that this was the most unstable form of life because you're to that point, constantly searching. And to our other great Russian writer, Dostoevsky, everything's permitted because we're all our own Mm. Superman. We're all making our own pleasure decisions. And that's what makes a society unstable when we're all just looking out for ourselves and all just looking for the things that maximizes pleasure. Yeah, these guys, I don't know, they're they're definitely the ones you're not rooting for. You have his sister dying and he decides to go off and go on his RPG side quest. Like, really? Who does that? Like, family's supposed to be the most important thing you have, right? Absolutely. So that brings us to our next sphere, the ethical sphere, which some people call the societal role sphere. And the idea is that you're in this sphere, you're willing to uphold morality. Like, there is good, there is evil, but there's also roles that you have to fulfill. When you're a husband, when you're a school teacher, when you are someone who is playing the role of a scout leader, something like that. These all put pressures on you on what your expectations are, and those expectations become chains, which means that a person who is in the ethical sphere is constantly searching not for pleasure, like you did in the asthete sphere, but for freedom. Because every time you agree and commit to doing something from a societal pressure, which again, when these these commitments and these things that you do, these are creations of society. These aren't creations of the person. And you you commit to these different roles that you can start to feel like a fractured mirror. And that's our boy, 
Karenin, right? He has his own personal desires. His wife has his desires. But all he's focused on is the public life. What's the public going to think about me? How's my career going to advance? He's got lots of different roles of, I'm a father. Oh, well, maybe I should have Anna take the child. I'm a husband. Well, you know, Vronsky's a better, well, not better. Vronsky's the one that she that I know my wife wants to love instead. I've got my career. Karenin is fractured from an ethical sphere ex point of existence and pulled from all these different levels. And maybe that's part of the problem with understanding him is that he is pulled in so many different ways at this point in time. I think this is where it's vitally important to understand a little bit of Russian history to enjoy this some more or get more out of it, in my opinion, is this idea of how influential Russian society was in the 19th century and how important it was to these people and this idea of that, you know, you didn't get divorced. That was a big no-no at the time period. And that your public life was important and that your private life was just shmeh at the time period. And and this is where I see the huge character development for uh, Karenin is that we learn about his background and that he was an orphan. He never had a stable family. And above anything else, he feels like I'm not going to get a divorce because that's wrong in the Russian religion. I'm going to keep my family together. I'm not going to let my child have a single mom or I'm not going to let my child be an orphan one day. I'm going to keep this family together at all costs because it's something he didn't have. <laughs> I mean, that's something we didn't know before. That change, that's got to change your whole perspective on this guy. It, it just... it. It almost broke my heart a little bit of like, I was too harsh on this guy in the beginning. And I remember on the live stream, I was and like, I want to apologize to him. <laughs> well, that's, that's the blessing and the curse of going through this, having never read it. We, we don't know where to guide. We don't know where to go. We just get raw reactions, right? In two, going back to the ethical sphere, one of the problems that Kierkegaard believes was this, to, to the point that you exactly elucidated right here is that there's going to be a breaking point. You only have so much willpower to inflict what you want and what society's needs of you are. At some point, you will break and just do what is ultimately pleasurable. And that is why people constantly, you know, like there's like, I, I just need to do what I want to do. And they, they like you see that in real life all the time. And, and that's why this part's so powerful for me is because then you do start seeking that thing. And then you're like, well, I could be better than this. And you start, you know, reaching out to those roles again. It's this circular existence that kind of exists that I think Kierkegaard has elucidated and Tolstoy has drawn very well and frequently draws very well is that pull between societal expectations and the personal pleasurable moments that you might seek for in life. Oblonsky is the kid that goes on his rum springer and doesn't go back to his family. He stays out and just continues partying the rest of his life. <laughs> right, right. And and when, yeah. come, when we come to Vronsky, he's complicated too, because I think we see him kind of flip back and forth between these two. He knows these roles. He also knows what he wants. And he gets confused, I think, on who he wants to be. Now, here's my controversial part. You ready for this? And this is, this is I think, is a fun part of us having never read the story and being able to make predictions. The Last Fear. The religious fear. We've we've talked about how dangerous it is to do biographical analysis, particularly because it seems like Tolstoy's evolving, and we have not read. I haven't read this era. I've only read his post-religious crisis era part of his biography. Here's my prediction for you, and and I'm I'm going to embarrass myself on the internet. Are you ready for this one? I'm ready. The religious side 
is when to escape this circle is you have to start taking this what's called leap of faith. You have to believe and you have to live for others. It's not just about you. It's not just about society. It's about having a central focus view for him. Kierkegaard, it was Christianity. And of course, Tolstoy had you know, Russian Orthodox to Christianity in his life from up until 18. And then he renounced it. And it's not until 10 years after this that he starts up again. I think we're seeing a journey for Tolstoy as a character who we've already said is represented in Levin, right? Sure, so yeah. here's my prediction. 100%. Levin is the one that is thinking of others. He is the one that upholds truth, that upholds morality, even though he has sinned. Right and hasn't gone to confession. He's a non-believer. That's obviously a pretty big sin for being a Christian. You can't be a Christian if sure, you're a non-believer, yeah. right? Like inconclusive, <laughs> right? So this is why this is controversial. I'm putting Levin in my religious sphere, and I'm taking, I'm putting bets, okay, on the future because I have read his a confession. It's like a little story by not a story, but a, a confession from Tolstoy himself about why he turned back towards Christianity. And what we're going to see, I think is we're going to see Levin turn back to religion. I think I think Levin is representing everything that the religious sphere of living for others, living for God, is supposed to represent. And I think we're going to see Levin eventually realize that and make that turn towards Christianity in the story. If I'm wrong, obviously my, my paper fails here. <laughs> I think you have a really good thesis there. Obviously, we know what happens in Tolstoy's real life. We know that Tolstoy's first name is Lev. He's writing a little bit autobiography in here. I, I think that you probably hit the nail on the head. That's probably what happens. But, you know, we've been wrong before, so it it may be wrong. But it, it it's the hope that that will happen, right? We want to see him turn out happy in all regards of his life, not just with his life with Kitty. I would argue a little bit, though, that I think when you said, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm putting words in your mouth, that he... He, he cares what Kitty thinks, but I think he's doing it just to please her a little bit. It's kind of back. It's where he bounces back and forth between that 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 pleasure. I mean, he's doing it for her pleasure and yeah, maybe his own yeah. happiness. I don't know. No, nope, that's much different yeah. when you do it for something that you want versus thinking about others first. It's very, very different. And that's the thing, too, okay. is that he is thinking about Kitty because he wants to make sure that she does love him and she's not loving him just so that she can fill the role of being the wife, the ethical solution would be if she just wanted to marry to be the wife, right? He wants her to live for others and such. And and I think that's a, an important point in Tolstoyan writing is living and loving others. So it's, I guess it's the idea here of we're looking at Levin in one regard of his, the, the, the social institutions that he's bouncing around in with religion and, and Christianity and a Russian aristocrats and then the other side of it, of his own spiritual journey. And you're saying that he's going to complete that journey and become a believer. I think so. I think he's going to represent okay. the religious fear of, of believing in taking that leap of faith, if you will. So religious redemption almost is yeah. his story. And yeah. Anna would be the one that loses. I think so. I think, okay. I don't know. I don't think things are looking good with the Padme scene in this one and the Vronsky horse. Oh, things are not looking good for Anna at all. That's <laughs> for things sure. are looking good. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. If you enjoyed this and you haven't already hit that like button, we'd really appreciate it as it helps out the channel. 
And of course, hit that subscribe button to join us because we gotta we gotta wrap this baby up. We got part six to eight coming up next. We got one more video, and then we're gonna wrap this up with, of course, the before you read uh, to kind of you know what were the things that we wish we knew beforehand. Of course, without spoilers. So, if that sounds like you, we'd love to have you on that journey. Una out.